Welcome to The Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This radio program is a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible. And on today's edition of The Word for Today, Pastor Chuck continues with the seventh day of creation as we pick up in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. And now with today's message, here's Pastor Chuck. Thus were the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. So we find the creation of the earth in chapter 1, the placing of man upon the earth, and then the declaration that on the seventh day God rested, not that he was tired because of all of the energy that had been expended in the creating of the earth because God is omnipotent, that means he can't get tired, but he had finished his work, and so he just rested from his work. In other words, there's nothing more to create. It's all been created. If, if God really took the day off and just kicked back and did nothing, the earth would go to pieces. Uh, because uh, the Bible says not only was all things, were all things created by him, but by him all things are held together. And so God rested from his creative works. All that had been created, all that is to be created, was created in that span. Nothing new is now being created. We're now in sort of a closed-in system. Nothing new is being created. There has been since that day a gradual deterioration of everything. Uh, the second law of thermodynamics. Everything is now gradually wearing down and slowing down and in the process of decay. Sir Jean said that the universe is like a giant clock that was wound up and is slowly running down. And so God ceased from his creative forces and from the creation of anything new. Now, God rested and from creation, so he sanctified or set apart that seventh day as a day of rest. And God established with Israel a covenant that they should keep that Sabbath day through all their generations. Someone said, well, when did the church start worshiping on Sunday? And those of the church who still enjoy worshiping on Saturday try to blame Constantine for the change to Sunday worship. But there are indications even in the book of Acts that they were gathering together on the first day of the week to break bread. Also in the letter to the Corinthians, Paul talks about when they gather together on the first day of the week to bring their offerings in so that there would be no collections taken while he was there. Tertullian, one of the early church fathers who antedates... Uh, Constantine and the whole development under Constantine 
uh, said that there were many Christians in that day who felt that the only day really in which they should take communion was the first day of the week because that was the day that marked the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, it is interesting that the number of Jesus in a numeric sense is the number eight, which is the number of new beginning. Seven is the number of completeness. Six is the number of man, imperfection. But when you've hit the full cycle of seven, you have seven notes to the scale, seven basic colors. Seven is a uh, seven days in the week, and uh, it's, a, it's a number that is, uh, speaks and has a connotation of completeness in a biblical sense. So when you have finished the seven, you start a new cycle. Number eight, then, is the number of new beginning. It's starting over anew. So that in numeric uh, structures and all, the number of Jesus is eight. And all of the names for Jesus in Greek are divisible by eight the number of new beginning. And so it seemed like the early church met many of them on the first day of the week, which would be the eighth day, the day that is the number for Christ. But there really shouldn't be any hang-up on it because Paul said in Romans 14, one man esteems one day above another. Another man esteems every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. In Colossians chapter 2, he said, Don't let any man judge you in respect to holy days, new moons, Sabbath days, which are all a shadow of things to come, for the substance is of Christ. In other words, the Sabbath days were just a shadow of things to come. They aren't the substance. A shadow is not substance. Substance creates a shadow. The substance is Jesus. The shadow that Jesus cast on the Old Testament was the Sabbath day. The day of rest. So that Jesus has become our Sabbath as Christians. He is our rest. We have ceased from our labors. We enter into his rest. And so Christ is our Sabbath. He is our rest. And the Sabbath days of the Old Testament were all looking forward to Jesus Christ who would bring rest. No longer is there a righteousness of works or of the law, but the righteousness now is by faith resting in Jesus Christ. And the one mark about those people who make such a big deal over a particular day to worship is they really don't have any rest. They're still seeking uh, to achieve a righteousness before God by keeping the law. And they have not entered into the substance, into Christ, and into that rest that is in Jesus Christ. The Sabbath law was given according to Exodus chapter 22 to the nation Israel and to those who would proselytize into the nation, becoming Jews as a proselyte. Then they were 
forced to keep the Sabbath day, or to the strangers that were in Israel. They also were forced to keep the Sabbath day. But the Sabbath day was never a regulation that was laid upon the Gentile church. In fact, in the book of Acts, when certain brethren came to the Gentile church of Antioch and began to trouble the brethren, saying that you cannot be saved except you keep the law of Moses and be circumcised, Paul and Barnabas came down to the church in Jerusalem in order to settle the issue once and for all. Peter testified of his call unto the Gentiles by God and of that initial work of the Holy Spirit when he went to them. But then Peter suggested that we not put on them a yoke of bondage, referring to the law, that neither we nor our fathers were able to keep. Paul and Barnabas testified of the marvelous work of the Holy Spirit among the Gentiles throughout the world where they were not keeping the law. And finally, James said, well, I suggest that we not put on them any greater burden than to write to them and give them Christian greetings and tell them to keep themselves from things that are strangled, from fornication, and if they do this, they do well. And so they wrote the letter to the church at Antioch saying, greetings unto you, and we just suggest that you keep yourselves from idols from things strangled and from fornication. And if you do this, you do well. The Lord be with you and bless you. But there was never any reference to the Gentile church of the Sabbath day or any of the rest of the law and the ordinances. Now, even that business of keeping yourself from things strangled and things offered to idols, Paul even modified that when he wrote to the Corinthians. He said, now when you are buying your meat in the butcher shop, don't ask him if it's been offered to an idol. Just buy it and go home and eat it. Give God thanks for it. For all things are to be received with thanksgiving. And if you don't ask, then you'll have no problems. <laughs> but if you ask him, was this offered to us? as a sacrifice to an idol? And he says, yes. And he says, then you're liable to have a hang up with your conscience when you eat it. So for conscience sake, just don't ask any questions. When you're invited out to eat at somebody's house, don't say, was this meat offered to an idol? He said, just eat what's set before you, asking no questions. That is for your conscience sake. For we know that all things are to be received with thanksgiving. There's nothing unclean in itself. So Paul had a glorious liberty in Christ Jesus and he said, Happy is the man whose heart condemneth him not in the things that he alloweth. So I imagine Paul ate pork chops <laughs> and had great freedom in these things, though he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees at one time. So God having rested, established, sanctified the seventh day, and made it as a covenant with the nation Israel, but God also established a pattern. Six days shalt thou labor and do thy work, and the seventh day you're to rest, the day unto the Lord. 
Now, it would be extremely healthy for all of us if we would take one day a week off and just kick back and do nothing. The Sabbath was made for man because man needs one day off out of seven. The reason why we have so much mental strain, the reason why we have so many heart attacks and all is because people haven't been following God's law of the seventh day. We keep going all the time. We don't stop to take a day off. And my wife says, yeah, you don't. And I've been telling you to do it. But it would be healthy. It's, it, it wouldn't make you any more spiritual. <laughs> It'd just be good for you. You'd live longer if that's your goal. <laughs> so now as we enter into verse 4, we are going to enter in now to a sort of a recapitulation of certain aspects of creation as we now amplify some of the aspects of creation. As we enter into this next section, beginning with verse 4, we're going to find that God is not referred to as just Elohim, as in chapter 1, but now He is Jehovah or Yahweh Elohim. Because now we are going to see God relating to man. And whenever God begins to relate to man, he relates to man through this marvelous name of Yahweh or Yehovah. As God seeks to become to man what man needs. And it is because of this now being a, a amplification of the creation of man and all. There are some people who see it as a second account and see it foolishly as contradictory to the first account. And they call the first chapter the Elohistic, and then they call this the Jehovistic, and then we get into a further account they call the Priestly. And so you have the JEP theories of, of whether or not it was the Jehovistic or the Elohistic or the Priestly writings, and they get things so confused that we're going to leave them with their confusion and just go on and study what God has to say. Now these are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So now the Lord God, and whenever you find Lord in all capital letters, as it is in this case, that means that it is that name for God that the Jews revered so highly, revered so highly, that they would not pronounce it. They would not write the vowels, but only the consonants in the manuscripts. J-H-V-H. Try and pronounce that. Yeah, you know, it's impronounceable. So we don't know what vowels were there. 
So the general consensus of opinion is that the name was to be pronounced Yahweh. But somewhere along the line, the, the pronunciation of Jehovah came along, or Yahovah, and it has become more popular, but Yahweh is probably the correct pronunciation, though we do not know for sure. But it is the name by which God has sought to relate to man as it is the name that speaks of God's desire to become to you all that you may need. So whenever you find this all capitals, L-O-R-D, it stands for that name of God. You will also find capital L, small o-r-d, and that means that it's the translation of the Hebrew Adonai, which means Lord as a title. But the all capitals means that it's a translation of the Yahweh, Lord, as a name, the name of God, the Yahweh. So here is the first use of it in the Bible in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Now it would seem that there was not a rain until the time of Noah. Prior to that, in the evening, a mist would arise out of the ground and the earth would be watered with this dew or with this mist. Now it is interesting that even though there was not rain, there were rivers. Four rivers that proceeded out from the Garden of Eden. How could you have rivers without rain? Creates an interesting problem that you can speculate on. But it is very possible that there were subterranean caverns of uh, with, with tremendous volcanic heat and forces and water coming in from the sea through the subterranean caverns into this steam generator, so to speak, the volcano, the steam going up and, of course, then condensing and flowing as water, and you could have uh, a water supply that way. You could have had, at that point, a lot of subterranean water and of course, with this tremendous moisture blanket around the atmosphere, it could have provided a humidity. And of course, at night, the mist going up, the earth was watered by this way prior to the flood. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. 
And so we are told that God in chapter 1 said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And God formed man out of the dust of the ground. And he breathed into man's nostrils. And man became a living soul. Created in the likeness of God with the ability to worship God and the ability to fellowship with God. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. So eastward would have been east of where he had created Adam. There is no way to really know directions. We don't know where the Garden of Eden was. There is no way of finding out where the Garden of Eden was because since that time, there have been several cataclysmic changes of the Earth's geography which have changed the courses of rivers and mountains and, and the whole thing. There's a very interesting book by Emanuel Velikovsky entitled Earth's in Upheaval in which he shows that the Himalayas and the Andes have both been formed in actually very recent years. Uh, there are indications at Lake Titicaca that there were civilizations around the lake when the lake was at a much lower altitude. We'll return with more of our verse-by-verse Bible study in the book of Genesis on our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck continues to teach through the Bible. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Genesis 2 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, be sure to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, that's the wordfortoday.org. For those of you wishing to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD, and our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of the Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure to join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. God bless you and keep His hand upon your life. And may you come to that place of a total reliance upon His strength, the acknowledging of your own weakness, the surrendering and the committing of yourself completely into His hands. And thus may your weak be blessed and anointed by God. In Jesus' name. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California.
As we look back over the roadmap of our lives, we often see the value of troubled times, personal trials, and even the experiences of pain or the death of a loved one. These are the building blocks that establish God's plan for us. It is with great honor that I'm pleased to introduce Pastor Chuck Smith's autobiography entitled, A Memoir of Grace. You're invited to pull up a chair and listen as Pastor Chuck shares his personal story of how God's grace prepared him for life's purposes. Perhaps, as you're reading this story, you'll be prompted to evaluate your own past, your present situation, and that which is yet to happen, and realize that it all plays a part in establishing God's plan for you. See God's grace at work in your own life when you order a personal copy of A Memoir of Grace by Pastor Chuck. God called me into the ministry and how God has just led us step by step. For more information on how to order your copy, visit us online at thewordfortoday.org or call toll-free at 1-800-272-WORD.